0: Hey Jay, you ever think about the forgotten X-Factor cast members? Is this about Rusty Collins again, Miles? I mean, yes, but also the other kids from that era. Everyone forgets they were X-Factor characters first. Boom Boom, Skids, Richter.
1: It's hard to be an X-Factor kid.
0: You can say that again.
1: It's hard to be an X-Factor kid.
0: You can say, wait, no, I'm stopping this before it becomes a vicious cycle.
1: Probably for the best. Things have turned out okay for some of them, though. Boom Boom has been running around with the Exterminators, and Richter's an Excalibur being a druid.
0: A druid?
1: Yeah, he's already got the connection to the Earth, and he got some tutoring from...
0: Uh, Merlin? Captain Britain?
1: Apocalypse.
0: What?! (laughs)
1: I'm Jay Editon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men.
0: Because it's about time someone did.
1: Welcome to episode 433 of Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera.
0: And welcome to a uh, respite from blow-by-blow continuity for both you and uh, for us in terms of of writing. Uh, We, as we mentioned a number of episodes ago, are here to talk about two series that ended recently in our coverage, X-Factor and Excalibur.
1: So this is going to be a bit of a postmortem, and as Miles mentioned, it's going to be a bit of a deviation from what we normally do, um, kind of taking a bird's-eye view of, of the two series as a whole, as well as looking at some of our favorite runs from each.
0: Yeah. We did something kind of similar to this many years ago. I don't even want to think about how many years ago, but like a lot after Inferno. Inferno was such a big deal to the entire X line. And it was really fun just to take an entire episode and just to talk through it, uh, its generalities, its consequences, what we liked, what we didn't. And here we have even more material to do that with two entire series, each of which lasted well over 100 issues. Since
1: it began first, I feel like maybe we should start with X-Factor.
0: That makes sense to me, yeah. So, X-Factor, one of the early, early X spinoffs. I think the second spinoff, because New Mutants, was first. And uh, this was a book with two eras that are so distinct from one another that it almost feels weird calling them the same comic. But I I feel like if we're doing a retrospective, we have to, right?
1: Right. I mean, they are effectively almost different series, even though they've got the same numbering. The first era... Which is one of my favorite, favorite chunks of, of, of X books. Um, it's the era featuring the original five X-Men that began at the beginning of the run in 1986.
0: Yes. And uh, as I understand, that was kind of editorially mandated because, of course, at the time, only four of those original five X-Men, Cyclops, Iceman, Angel, and Beast, were alive. In the Dark Phoenix saga, Jean Grey had very thoroughly died on the moon after she became Dark Phoenix. So what do you do, right?
1: Well, what you do in this case is the Phoenix retcon as pitched by Kurt Busiek and enacted in Fantastic Four. Um, to Chris Claremont's great chagrin, uh, I think he he never agreed with the decision to bring Jean back. And I gotta say, this is a place where I disagree pretty strongly with him. Because I think it was handled re- in really, really interesting ways.
0: Well, I mean, sort of, like the Jean Grey retcon, the idea that the Phoenix had been impersonating her and she was just in a mattress-looking cocoon at the bottom of a body of water, that that's a weird way of doing it. I mean, Kurt Busiek, it's, it's a good way of doing it that he came up with, but that's a weird retcon, and I feel like that right there is the genesis of so much of why we did this podcast, because that and then Madeline Pryor, Jean's clone that kind of came out of it— like, so much of the X madness that we enjoy comes from, when you get down to it, this retcon.
1: Yeah, yeah, it really does.
0: So, I remember at the beginning, we were talking about how Chris Claremont, like you mentioned, he was super opposed to bringing Gene back. Uh, he had some alternative ideas, right? Because, like, he knew there was going to be an X Factor no matter what, so, like, he pitched alternate fifth members.
1: Uh, yeah, and the two of those I know of are Dazzler and Jean's sister, Sarah.
0: Yeah, we've talked about that over the years at various times. I think we had a vaguely recent listener question about them. And, you know, those could have been fun, but it just wouldn't have been the same. It wouldn't have felt like O5 era X Factor.
1: Yeah, I think having the entire O5 on the team was a brilliant move for reasons that had nothing to do with the intent behind it. I think it's because it gave mostly Louise Simonson space to really tell a story about these characters learning to live as adults. That For real. That would have lost a lot of its power if it hadn't been characters who we'd last seen together basically as teenagers.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so Louise Simonson, she did indeed take over with number six, but before that we had uh, Bob Layton's run. And Bob Layton's run was, like, fine. I mean, the premise was strange, the idea that, like, X-Factor disguised themselves as mutant hunters, but then when they were called in to hunt mutants, they would really rescue them secretly odd but fine but the thing i always remember about bob layton's run is that the mysterious villain behind all the bad guys in his early early work um louise Simonson would write that to be apocalypse but bob layton wrote that to be the owl you know like that daredevil villain who's a crime lord who's a little owly I'm not, I don't want to, like, throw shade on the owl. He's a perfectly valid villain, and I think he might get mad at me and kill me if I threw too much shade. But he's no ensaban you know?
1: You want to know my favorite owl fact?
0: Uh, like, owl the character or owl the bird? The bird. Yes, I do.
1: They are apparently just dumb as a sack of bricks. Oh, good. Like, nearly untrainable.
0: Excellent! Like all of their brain power just goes into rotating their head way too far in each direction.
1: They've also got really, really long legs. Like it doesn't look like it because of how fluffy they are, but they have they have super long legs. It's very silly. Oh, and and owlets sleep lying down because their heads are so heavy.
0: It's real dumb looking. Yeah, you sent me a picture a, a while back. Oh, owls! You're almost entirely brainless, and your legs are too long, and your babies fall over.
1: Good job.
0: So I can only assume that the Daredevil villain, the owl, I mean, I've read a lot of modern Daredevil, but not a lot of old Daredevil, so I can only assume he has all of those traits also.
1: I've read a lot of old Daredevil, and honestly, it's just not covered.
0: Oh. Well, I mean, clearly we need, like, an X-Men Legend-style retrospective issue that's all about the owl falling on his face when he goes to sleep. Well, as a baby. As a baby. As a baby. Baby owl. Young something-or-other Owesley. I forget his name. That's okay. So, yeah, Louise Simonson takes over just a handful of issues into the book. I mean, I'm not entirely sure what was going on there. But again, no shed on Bob Layton either. Louise Simonson really revitalized that book. She just got those characters, all five of them. And I think more importantly, she got the dynamics they all shared. Like any combination of two or more of those characters, they had their own unique dynamic. And Louise Simonson just portrayed that almost effortlessly.
1: But you know what Bob Layton did give us? What's that? warren kenneth worthington flying through an airport topless
0: oh yeah at the beginning when like they find out gene's still alive and everybody's freaking out and warren's like gonna fly through an airport shirtless and scott's like gonna go into a fugue state and find a sushi bar
1: well wander past a sushi bar at least a a new wave sushi bar specifically
0: you know it's like when al and i did that gen x underground issue recently and we wanted to hear more about the donut day riots Uh, i really want to hear more about the new wave sushi bar i want to go there actually Do you think it's still open
1: I don't think your hair is fancy enough.
0: I mean, I have a lot of hair. I could, like, put a bunch of stuff in it and make it fancy. I need some help, though. I'm not good at that.
1: So, in addition to revisiting and really giving the original five a chance to grow, this was a run that introduced some really strong supporting characters, some of whom are still around.
0: Oh yeah. Um I mean, well, first off, we already talked about them. So the mutants that X Factor rescued, mostly they were they were young mutants. We had Rusty Collins, we had Skids, we later had Boom Boom and Richter and Artie and Leech, and I love all of those characters.
1: Yeah, this was the series that introduced Artie and Leech to one another, even.
0: Yeah, that's right, I think Leech had, like, shown up in, in Power Pack and stuff beforehand, but Leech was uh, more of a big deal in this series. And, yeah, he and Artie became fucking inseparable. Like, I'm glad that they're still around here and there. I'm glad that they're inseparable. I agree that you could get some good drama uh, if you had some conflict between them, but I don't want that. I just want them to be best bros for, like, the entirety of history, the little pink kid and the little green kid.
1: That that works for me. They can, They can then be the little pink adult and the little green adult
0: exactly uh kind of like how emma frost's um manservant people in generation x were a big green adult and a big pink adult and that was always confusing because they looked like arty and leech and it was like never addressed yep you know gen x was a weird comic uh but we are not here to retrospectively discuss generation x we're here to retrospectively discuss other books so yeah um we have to talk about Rusty Collins because he was the first mutant that X-Factor rescued. He was in that book for so much of its history, and he was, like, forgotten so much. Like, all the other characters have had futures, some more than others. I mean, especially, say, Boom Boom and Richter. uh. But Rusty? No. No, he was just the red-haired guy who was— A nice person and then got injured in Inferno and then ended up joining some bad guy groups and getting ignominiously killed by a different bad guy when Holocaust blew up uh, the Acolyte space station.
1: So I have some potential explanations for this, and one of them is that Rusty, at least on his surface, isn't all that interesting. That sounds mean. And I'm not saying that he doesn't have the potential to be an interesting character. I'm not saying he isn't an interesting character, but I am saying that a lot of writers, when they look at him, go, meh.
0: It's hard to know what to do with him. In a way, I'm reminded of Magma from The New Mutants. Yeah, yeah. Cool. uh, Also, weirdly, a character with fire powers who's often forgotten and nobody knows how to write. I wonder what it is about fire powers. I mean, at least you know, Firestar's written better, Sunfire's written better. Admittedly, he never sticks around on a team for very long, but still.
1: In Rusty's case, I think age liminalism had something to do with it because he was in some ways the only young adult with a group of older teenagers and where he fit between the two teams was always kind of in question i mean it was never really addressed but it was always sort of there
0: yeah and even skids sally blevins the former morlock who was his girlfriend like she was still an outsider kind of character. I think largely by virtue of having been a Morlock for so long Mm -hmm. and boom, boom was boom, boom. And Richter was pretty messed up himself. So yeah, everybody sort of had all their issues. And Rusty was like, I mean, when his powers manifested, it was traumatic because he almost killed a lady who was coming on to him, but there wasn't as much, but I don't know. What do we think about the idea of the original five X-Men being X-Factor and like having that be their premise, hunting mutants and then rescuing them? Like, I know Louise Simonson didn't really stop that premise. I mean, she did a very good job of continuing organically from Leighton's run, but it did become less and less of a focus until it was eventually dropped.
1: So I think it was a terrible idea that made itself into a terrific retcon.
0: You're talking about Cameron Hodge. I'm talking about Cameron Hodge. Let's talk about Cameron Hodge.
1: Yeah. So I think the initial idea, the idea that, oh, they're going to be in disguise as mutant hunters, but then they're going to save mutants is kind of stupid um i don't think that it was well thought out and what salvages it for me is making it the plan of someone who's trying to undercut the team yeah i think that's a brilliant brilliant direction to twist it
0: and it worked so well because it starts out and there's just like angel's old college roommate who's this sort of business uptight dude And he's the one behind the idea. But it turns out, yes, he's so, so anti-mutant and so jealous of Warren and ends up like an immortal demon allied techno organic severed head running a country like that is an impressive upgrade or downgrade if we're talking about, you know, morality.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is this is the series that gave us Apocalypse. But honestly, when I think of the X Factor villains who really stick with me, it's Cameron Hodges is front and center.
0: Oh, 100%. Yeah. And I think part of that is that Apocalypse so easily transitioned to becoming, like, a general ex-villain, a general ex-antagonist, because he's such a big deal. He's so insanely powerful. But with Cameron Hodge, it was always personal.
1: Exactly. Apocalypse's villainy or, or antagonisthood is always so much bigger than the X-Men. And Cameron Hodge gets bigger and bigger, but he does All of it because he's pissed off at one guy and wants to undercut everything he's ever stood for.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's great. And I mean, you know, he stayed an antagonist for so long. Like, through Inferno, he was a big deal. Like, he was the center of the Extinction Agenda event. And I guess he's been around since then, but for me, like... That was his sort of final boss uh, storyline. And anything after that is just going to be a downgrade. Like multiple, multiple teams had to do like a gigantic multi-part finishing move to take him out at the end of it. It was so satisfying.
1: It also gave us what I think was his absolute best physical form, which was the th- just his head on this big techno-organic abomination with a cardboard cutout of a body in a business suit hanging around its neck that was god that was so good
0: it was so delightfully ghoulish i know like images that will always stick with us from the comics we have covered for almost 10 years now like that is uh, top five top three maybe
1: I've thought a lot about ways to make a Halloween or cosplay costume out of that, and i i've all all of them have ended with the realization that they would be more effort than I'm entirely willing to put into a gag that like one person is gonna get, but yeah, if someone out there is is more ambitious than I, you should go for it.
0: <laughs> that would be amazing, oh man so yeah i mean we we talked a little bit about the events we talked about um. Uh, extinction agenda of course where cameron hodge is the big antagonist but let's talk about the other two big ones that the o5 were involved in because those were incredibly transformative for them uh those being the fall of the mutants and inferno i mean i guess there's mutant massacre but that's i just sort of lumped that into fall of the mutants because it's all like angel getting fucked over
1: yeah yeah it, it sucks to be angel in, in x factor it really sucks to be all of the members of x factor and x factor
0: It sucks to be a mutant. Like, I think what it is, is it sucks to be a Summers, or to stand too close to a Summers for too long.
1: Fair, fair.
0: Mamas, don't let your babies grow up to hang out near a Summers.
1: Right, so, fall of the mutants.
0: Fall of the mutants, yeah, because in the mutant massacre, Angel had gotten nailed to a wall by his wings, ended up being amputated, he maybe tried to kill himself, maybe was killed... And he ends up uh, showcasing just how terrifying Apocalypse is when Apocalypse makes him his horseman of goddamn death. He resurrects him and turns him into a killing machine.
1: You know, we said we weren't going to focus on the mutant massacre, but I think it is worth calling out just as the first Marvel crossover.
0: Oh, 100%. Yeah. And also hilarious because at this point, X-Factor thought the other X-Men were dead and the other X-Men still thought that Jean Grey was dead. And it was such like a comical event. I mean, it was it was horribly tragic, but the part where they almost kept seeing each other but never quite did like the writers were just writing things in circles to make that work
1: yeah that was that was pretty funny
0: yeah i mean all the murder was uh, much less funny
1: and then there was inferno and inferno god well i mean x x factor was at the the core of inferno
0: because, in part, Madeline Pryor was at the core of Inferno. Because that's the thing. You bring Jean Grey back. What do you do about the fact that Cyclops is married to a lady who looks just like Jean? And I know Chris Claremont hated that. He hated that it turned Cyclops into such a deadbeat jerk. But, man, it made for some good stories. Madeline Pryor, who we find out is a clone of Jean Grey created so that Mr. Sinister could still have a baby from, like, her DNA and Cyclops' DNA to fight Apocalypse— God, that's a really convoluted sentence right there. Anyway, uh, Madeline Pryor is such a great character. Like, she slowly realizes between X-Men and X-Factor, like, that she's not real and that her husband abandoned her for somebody who was, who she was just based on. And I love that it's not just, like, that she's a jilted lover. It's, no, she ends up allying with goddamn demons, becoming the Goblin Queen, and almost destroying the world.
1: I mean— if you're going to do it, do it right. Madeline Pryor is a phenomenal character, and she's a phenomenal, phenomenal antagonist. I think. I mean, I think she. I, and I'm going to say antagonist rather than villain because I think I think she's justified in ways that that villains rarely rarely are. Um, I will also continue, and I, I did in the, the episode way, way, way back a million years ago when we talked about it, to say that I, I think that um, popular perception of Cyclops' actions have 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 done him wrong in this context. Um, but that is that is that is and was a conversation for a different episode.
0: <laughs> Reasonable. So yeah, we have the original five X-Men. We have so many of their stories just coming from the fallout of the initial premise being kind of wacky and Jean Grey coming back, messing up a lot of story stuff. Of course, it didn't last forever because they ended up rejoining the X-Men after the Mirror Island saga. But damn if Louis Simonson didn't spin that all into gold.
1: There's one more arc I want to talk about. It's an X-Factor specific arc. And... It's such a weird little one-off of an arc, and it gets forgotten a lot, but it's absolutely great, and that is Judgment War.
0: Fucking Judgment War, which, by the way, was finally just collected in trade paperback after all these years pretty recently. Yeah, it's this, like, way too many parts science fiction epic where the characters end up in another world, and they lose their memories, and they each join different parts of society, and there's all this conflict stuff.
1: It's drawn by Paul Smith.
0: And it's beautiful.
1: It's it's gorgeous. It's also the source of, of our running ZZ105 gag. Right,
0: because there's a little robot named ZZ105, and we decided that sounded like a radio station, and then you just sort of ran with that over the course of many, many years. It
1: yeah, it was it was a gift. It was specifically it was a robot full of drugs. Like that's important. <laughs> I forgot it
0: carried drugs.
1: It carried a lot of drugs. It was again it was it was literally it was a little, little robot full of drugs.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but aren't we all at heart? Uh, but yeah, like, it worked shockingly well, in part because the new characters, uh, like, I, I still remember Perfect Sierra, um, were really compelling, and also having the characters get amnesia but still stay true to their natures, the original five X-Men, kind of illuminated their personalities in new ways. Also, Jean Grey got the memories of Madeline Pryor and the Phoenix integrated with herself at the end. Also, she helped Cyclops shoot the feelings of, like, an entire planet's worth of people out of his eyeballs in a blast of pure emotion to turn the thumbs down of a big space robot into a thumbs up so it didn't annihilate the planet. Possibly the best conclusion to a comic book story in the history of comic book stories. It did feel
1: extraordinarily high stakes.
0: It was! And the thing is, the fact that when you just explain it real quick, it sounds goofy as shit, but, like, if you read the story, well, it's still goofy as shit, but it's also epic as shit. So, we've spent,
1: I think, longer than we intended to with the original five, and... I, we should jump up to the next era of X-Factor, which I feel like is the best-known iteration of X-Factor, and the one from which future iterations of X-Factor are going to be spinning off, and that is the government era of the team.
0: Yeah, because the original five X-Men after the Mirror Island saga end up rejoining the X-Men, and then you still have a book called X-Factor, so you can either cancel it, or you can throw some new characters into it, and inevitably have kind of a new premise.
1: And in this one, we had... A team of of mutants put together to work for the government, basically doing X Men type stuff, but you know, with a flag pinned on.
0: Yeah, uh, this was written by Peter David, and in looking all of this up, I was kind of shocked to realize his run lasted for like twenty issues. Yeah, it was so very influ- brief, and it, it was so influential. Um, but yeah, we had like Cyclops' brother, Havoc, former X Man, and Magneto's kind of daughter, Polaris. Uh, strong Guy, the bodyguard of intergalactic rock star Lila Shaney, who we'd only ever briefly seen, former New Mutant Wolfsbane, multiple man who'd been in, like, in the background for years and years, former Avenger Quicksilver, and their new government liaison, Val Cooper. And these were characters that mostly didn't really know each other, but very quickly, that became an asset. It became this like workplace comedy action series.
1: Yeah, and there was a lot of workplace drama to be had, especially with Val Cooper, the world's most bureaucratic bureaucrat, at the the front of the team.
0: But it was so—it was such a good tone. It was such a different tone, like, from the original Five X-Factor. It had nothing to do with it, because the book was, like, actively really funny. That was there from the start.
1: It was funny, but it was also pretty bittersweet, because I, I remember the—because character drama started pretty immediately.
0: Yeah. And I mean, some of that's just, you know, Havoc being Havoc, and, like, Wolfsbane had just gotten over being taken over and brainwashed in the extinction agenda and stuff, and she was, like, genetically programmed to be in love with Havoc, and he's like, dude, you're really young, and I love somebody else, and this is messed up, and now we're on the same team. But it was all handled really well, and, like, with a lot of compassion for the characters, I think.
1: Um, later on, we had new additions to the team. There was Forge, the um, you know, mutant gadget here. Random. um whom I'm not going to explain in detail here, Wild Child or off brand Sabretooth, and Shard, Bishop's younger sister, who is also a hologram.
0: And also a couple of villains were thrown onto the team, Mystique and Sabretooth. So this was after Peter David was gone. And this started, I don't know, like, it's called X-Factor Underground, certain parts of it. A lot of people refer to this as the Suicide Squad era of X-Factor after the DC team, because like, there were so many villains who were pressed into service on the team, or like, not villains exactly, but characters who were a little rougher around the edges, like Wild Child, And... It was weird. Like, we had quite a few fill-in issues for, I don't know, like 20 or more issues before Howard Mackey's lengthy run started that would that would end X-Factor. And it was kind of all in this still-the-government era, but not exactly. It was darker, and it became clear that what Mackey was kind of trying to do with his disparate plot threads over the years he wrote was to create a modern-day lead-in to the dark future of Days of Future Past. He was like showing us where the Hound program started, some of the anti-mutant legislation, a lot of the political stuff going on. Like the government era was always kind of political. It became a little more so in his run as well. And so that's one of the things I choose to focus on when looking back at Mackey's run, because the run itself was like, all right, for my tastes. Uh, what about you, Jay?
1: I'm very much of the same opinion. I mean I think I think Mackie went into his run with a lot of vision for where it could go. Um I don't think he was always particularly deft at getting it there.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree. Well and especially after like the Excellent, excellent character focus that Peter David had. I mean, I think back to number eighty seven, the issue where all of X Factor goes to therapy with Doc Sampson and we really get into all their heads. Like, you know, mm-hmm. a scene that certainly still defines Quicksilver for me, where he talks about how frustrating it is to live in a world where everyone's so much slower than you. Yeah. Um, it's just all time classic, in my opinion. And uh, you know, that level of understanding of the characters, that's that's hard to follow. But still, Mackie had some interesting stuff there. And, and the cast was just so excellently bizarre. Like bouncing Mystique off Forge. That was something Chris Claremont set up years before. Having Bishop's kid's sister join a government team that it started to become clear would eventually lead into the future cops that she was part of in the future. Like, I love that time travel shit.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's a it's a run in an era. And in general, a a section of, of X factor. That, for me, is is marked by potential.
0: A lot of it, yeah. A
1: lot of that potential is unrealized, but it's very clearly
0: there. That's true, yeah. And, I mean, even after David left and before Mackie started, you'd have these nice little promising runs by writers who would never stick around. Like, no writer stuck around for very long— in between when David stopped with number 89 and when Mackie started with number 115. And that's like a couple years right there where the book was doing some fun stuff, but didn't feel cohesive. And then, of course, toward the end of X-Factor, Mackie really started to put into play what he'd been building. He completely was reinventing the book. He brought back more future cops, but like renegade future cops to the present. And like a bunch of the other members quit and the future cops joined and Havoc came back. And then it all blew up. And then it all blew up. The series ends with number 149, just as this new team is finally getting started. Havoc gets on a plane to save somebody. It blows up. The end. We next see Havoc in another dimension in the mostly unrelated Mutant X series. And all of the other characters scatter. The other future cops, the renegade ones, never seen again and only briefly mentioned.
1: Yeah, the ignominious end of X-Factor Volume 1 is, I think, part of why when it's been revived, it's been revived, hearkening back to Peter David's run on it.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, It is unfortunate that that ending sours things so much because man things were just starting to really get interesting in in mackie's run and i feel like that's all lost because of like how comically abruptly the series ends maybe other people don't find that as funny i know jay you and i just cannot get over the fact that the series literally just explodes abruptly
1: uh yes i think that's very very funny but i think i was also primed to find that funny by many episodes of c-lab 2021
0: Oh, right, because the the C-Lab blows up at the end abruptly, often for no reason, of almost every episode.
1: Including the one that's just an episode of C-Lab 2020.
0: (laughs) I love that show. That was—you really had to be, like, our exact sub-generation, I think, to find that as funny as we did, but we did. It was pretty exceptional. It was. Uh, Also, just—I feel like everyone who was working on that was high 100% of the time. Uh, C-Lab, not X-Factor.
1: Maybe X-Factor 2. We don't know.
0: Maybe. We don't know. I mean, I know that uh, a couple of the creators of, like, Old Doctor Strange used to drop acid and wander through Central Park to come up with plots, or so I have read.
1: So let's talk about spinoffs and future X-Factor series, because there have been a lot.
0: There have, yeah. Um, you know, I feel like the, the one that came after this in 2002, that four-issue miniseries about, like, the mutant civil rights task force of the FBI, that almost seems. Like, it wasn't a bad series, but it almost seemed like they were just trying to keep the copyright in play of the title because it had, like, almost nothing to do with with X-Factor.
1: Ah, Excalibur Syndrome.
0: Uh, Well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But after that, like you said, it came right back to the Peter David era, complete with Peter David writing a new series of X-Factor in 2006. It went on for years and years and years. I have all of the trades on my shelf next to me, and there are a lot, like 21, I think, um in fact it was so similar to his original run of x factor that it adopted the original numbering past a certain point um this was the x factor investigations era where madrox led the team outstanding run in my opinion like i don't know if it'd be everybody's style but i loved it
1: it's a lot of fun and i think it captured a lot of what made the early part of the government team good which was taking mutants out of a super team context
0: yeah, and it also focused really hard on interpersonal character drama, like, so well, so well. And then more recently, X-Factor came back in the Krakoan era, written by Leah Williams, as, again, another investigative team. Uh, this time they were investigating, like, when mutants were murdered or died somehow, like, to make made, they made sure they were really dead so you didn't accidentally resurrect someone who was still alive. And again, such good character interaction. These characters were all so messed up and so sympathetic and so fascinating bouncing off of each other. I wish that series had lasted longer. It was phenomenal.
1: So we're about halfway through, and that means that it's time to move on to the second series we're going to be looking at today, and that is Volume 1 of Excalibur.
0: Oh, Excalibur. As I recall, that was one of the first two series that you and I jointly collected, like, the entirety of in floppy form, right?
1: It was, Excalibur and New Mutants. Yeah,
0: yeah. Oh, and Excalibur is so different from other X-books, and I think especially at the start. I mean, it started with uh, some Captain Britain characters from not really in the X-universe at all, and some X-Men who had survived the fall of the mutants and thought the rest of the X-Men were dead as this super unlikely team in a book that turned out to quickly become hilarious.
1: Yeah, narratively, its roots are most firmly in the Captain Britain miniseries.
0: Uh, And all the old like British series that Captain Britain went in and out of like Alan Moore's original run that where the multiverse was created, which of course would be a big deal in Excalibur. And that's the thing like it's a series you can just start with number one, but I kind of feel like if you want to really, really enjoy it, you have a little bit of homework to do homework that is kind of hard to track down the early Captain Britain stuff was all over the place.
1: So speaking of Captain Britain, let's look at sort of who that starting team was. We had Captain Britain, Megan, Nightcrawler, Shadowcat, Phoenix, Rachel Summers, Phoenix, and Lockheed the Dragon.
0: Yeah, and like some of these characters knew each other really well. I mean, uh, Kitty and Nightcrawler knew each other super well others really didn't but that dynamic got so interesting so quickly and part of that is you know you had the love triangle where megan and nightcrawler were attracted to each other and captain britain was being a real shit most of the time because he was at a bad point in his alcoholism but still these characters quickly became such a strange found family and it worked so well now
1: excalibur i think unlike x factor has enough of sort of enough cohesion and had enough of sort of definitive voices on it that there are runs that I think of as sort of the core and the heart of Excalibur. And those specifically are the runs written by Chris Claremont or the first 25 issues and issues 42 to 67, which were written by Alan Davis.
0: Yeah, yeah. Those first two early Excalibur runs with a bunch of fill-ins in between and a number of fill-ins after. Quite a few, actually. There were a lot of long fill-in eras of Excalibur, mostly Scott Lobdell, some other writers. But those two, and I think part of why they feel so cohesive is Alan Davis penciled them both. And we have waxed rhapsodic about Alan Davis's pencils for so long. He draws the swoopiest hair, the sexiest turtlenecks, the sexiest everything, really. His characters are, like, way too attractive. But he's also just so emotive, and in a book that's all about earnest connection and also all about goofball comedy, like, that works super well.
1: Well, he's got so, so much of a voice. We see Excalibur start in, I think, a more artist-driven era, but as it progresses, it gets into a time when, when Marvel was really kind of courting a house look. And Davis always sort of skirted close enough to that to not get the hammer dropped, but was always very, very, very much Alan Davis in his art. And... That that voice was, I think, distinct in ways that very few artists got to be at the time, or got, very few got to be as consistently for as long as Davis was on Excalibur.
0: And that consistency was a lot of what made it work and what made those fill-in eras stand out as especially eh, meh. Now, there were some good issues in the fill-in eras, sure, but nothing like when it was cohesive like that. And, I mean, Alan Davis just—he knew those characters so well— and when he took over and did his own era where he wrote also from 42 to 67, like you said, it it just felt like it picked up right where he and Chris Claremont left off. Like, so much of his run was just addressing dangling plot threads. Like, the little kid that disappeared in one of the first few issues of Excalibur going through one of Robot Head Widget's portals. Oh, yeah, he comes back as like a barbarian Catman warrior in another dimension, and he joins the team for a long time.
1: And he does it really well, too. Like, it doesn't feel like he's just chasing after Claremont, you know, cleaning up. It it feels it, it's, it's again, he's got his own voice as a writer. He knows the characters. I think, honestly, in a lot of ways, the, the Solo Davis run is is peak Excalibur.
0: You know, I would agree. I love the Claremont Davis run. I think I love the Davis run more. And part of that is it leads up to such a phenomenal climax with number 50. Like, okay, the villain of number 50 is Necrom. Who cares about Necrom? He's a weird bald green wizard guy. But like the fact that it's all about the history of the Phoenix Force as it relates to the multiverse, as it relates to otherworld and Merlin and stuff, like it's just all of the plot threads that not just Excalibur to this point has been about, but also the Captain Britain's old comics have been about. It all comes to a head.
1: Excalibur with Under Claremont and Davis felt epic and sweeping and legendary and yeah you know, Cosmic isn't quite the word I'm looking for because it's very, very much, you know, rooted in fantasy rather than science fiction. But it it feels, I, I I come back to the phrase high stakes, but it feels high stakes and high drama and high adventure and just fun. It was just a really, really fun book.
0: It was, yeah. And I love that it doesn't just, you know, use the same formula. It's not just like the Silver Age X-Men, which is the same five characters over and over. Like, it expands we talked about kylan just now but there's also space lady cerise who learns about lip massage from nightcrawler and petulant young wizard farron who thought that he was supposed to get the phoenix force and i guess the guy that can change size micromax he showed up for like 10 minutes but whatever um the one original davis page uh, we have has him on it so i i'm inclined to give him more love but um that was fun and then like marvel editorial just sort of said no, after that, after Davis's run, and very quickly, most of the non x related characters were just written out of the book. Farron disappears, Kylan disappears, Cerise disappears, even Captain Britain disappears, although Megan stuck around because she was, like, kind of a mutant.
1: And you see the book taking a much grittier, much more 90s direction under Warren Ellis, says writer.
0: A little bit after that, yeah, they're already uh, based out of Muir Isle at this point, under Dr. Moira McTaggart, and Ellis really turns it into an ellis book i mean he brings in pete wisdom who's this like grizzled hard drinking old spy dude who's basically just a stand-in for Warren ellis and quickly hooks up with shadow cat who uh last we checked was very much a teenager but it's not written that way anymore like yeah the tone really does shift and i don't think it's a bad tone by any means i quite like the ellis run of excalibur despite my feelings about ellis himself uh but boy howdy it is a shift
1: Yeah, it's a very, very different book, tonally and kind of structurally. And it's, I, I gotta say, there are things about it that I really like. I think Ellis does a terrible job pacing it. There are a lot of issues that never quite have resolution and then just have a page of text at the end explaining what happened.
0: Uh, Yeah, that's surprisingly common. It's true. And that's, like, especially jarring in Excalibur, a book where plot threads would simmer for years and years and years before being addressed. I guess some of them weren't ever fully addressed, like the fact that Captain Britain's girlfriend was murdered and replaced by, like, an evil interdimensional dictator named Satire 9. It happens. It, It does happen. But yeah, this was very much a different Excalibur. I mean, I think the main similarity at this point was that it was a team based out of Europe, and, like, Nightcrawler... And uh, Shadow Cat were, were both on it still. Like, mostly that. I guess Megan was still on it for a while. Captain Britain came back, but it's it's just a totally different vibe. But yeah, character wise, that kind of makes me think of something that a lot of people forget, which is that throughout the entirety of this book, Nightcrawler and Shadow Cat were characters. Like, every single era, they were there. They were gone from the X Men for like a decade. And that's easy to forget because they've been on the X Men for so long since then but I don't know I feel like it really gave them both a chance to grow up like they were so much more green and young seeming when they left the X-Men but Shadowcat really grew up into like a young adult and Nightcrawler became so much more confident and became such a leader I mean you remember back in the X-Men days he tried to leave the X-Men for like 10 minutes and he was so bad at it that the 13 year old kid Shadowcat had to take over yep yeah. So, I don't know, what do you think? Like, how do you think the characters sort of grew and changed over the course of Excalibur before they just come back to the X-Men?
1: I mean, I think they got to blossom in ways that they wouldn't have on the X-Men, because the X-Men have always been sort of much more structured as a team, and Excalibur was sprawlingly dysfunctional in ways that created room for individuals to explore in different directions.
0: You know, that's a really good point. It was just such a chaotic book. And, I mean, part of that goes back right back to issue number one. In fact, to the special before issue number one, where they all got together. Like, they never really intended to be a team. They just sort of all ended up in the same place and decided to fight bad stuff after they were attacked by, like, silver skin-stealing werewolf things. Yeah,
1: Excalibur's members did a lot of just sort of falling and landing in the plot, which worked beautifully, again, in, in that sort of epic legend fantasy play space and yeah, you know, which was again kind of lost in the later parts of 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 the series
0: that's said, i think you can take it too far so one of the first big excalibur stories was the cross time caper where they just kept getting shunted from one world in the multiverse to another, to another to another to another and it was so much fun and then it just kept going it just kept fucking going
1: yeah yeah it, it became less of a caper than a cross time slog
0: <laughs> the cross time slog yeah so yeah we had ellis's run end and then uh, a little bit after that ben rob takes over and finishes out the series and the lineup you know we'd already seen some changes like pete wisdom had joined moira mctaggart was a bigger deal uh nightcrawler's foster sister slash girlfriend day tripper was there but like Duglock becomes a bigger deal the techno organic far too complicated kind of different version of warlock slash cypher colossus and wolfsbane join the team after wolfsbane leaves uh x factor and after colossus leaves the acolytes
1: that happened during ellis's run if i recall
0: uh i guess it did yeah that's the thing like it's weird because I think of Ellis's run as so being so uh, singular, so distinctive, and having such its own feel. But, um, yeah, that stuff did happen when he was writing, and then it sort of continued from there. I will say Ben Robb, like, not always my favorite run, but uh, he did actually pick up from Ellis and the uh, villains pretty gracefully.
1: Yeah, I think he did an okay job with what he had to work with, Um there's a lot of his run that I feel like kind of smacks of nostalgia without progress. I, I've talked about that before. Like, I think I think he's got just, like, I, I think, like, he very clearly loves the same Excalibur stuff that we do, which is gratifying. But he's trying so hard to return to it and revisit it without being Chris Claremont or Alan Davis that it just it falls inevitably short and i think if he'd if he'd let himself or if he'd been let to have more of a voice during that era it probably would have benefited from that
0: yeah yeah i would agree but at the same time like you know what do you do what do you do if you're howard Mackey and you want to like lead into one of the best x-men stories ever Days of future past what do you do if you're ben robb and you want to like revisit this beloved era of, of excalibur it's a hard position to be in it is yeah And so yeah, we see Excalibur eventually ending, uh, not with any like grand climactic encounter the way that, you know, number 50 was when Alan Davis was writing and drawing and all the Phoenix multiverse stuff came to a head, but instead with just sort of a natural evolution of Captain Britain and Megan getting married and the the former X-Men feeling guilty that they weren't there to help with like the bad X-Men stuff that had been going on and them leaving. And you know, talking about X-Factor and Excalibur in the same episode— That's interesting because, of course, X-Factor did continue on when literally the entire cast left for another book. And here we have half the cast doing so in Excalibur, and the book ends.
1: But we have other characters going in other directions. I mean, Captain Britain really hadn't been quite present on the team in a very, very long time. Megan was there largely because Captain Britain was there. And, was, and it looked like was, was getting more and more eager to, could, to go in different directions. And also the team had kind of served the purpose it was created to serve. Like Excalibur was a team that came together somewhat accidentally, but very quickly had a specific vision and mission that was very, very closely linked to Captain Britain's identity. And without Captain Britain there, the team persisted somewhat, but Captain Britain coming back and then, more deliberately leaving again i think pulled out kind of the keystone in ways that left those other characters sort of free to go off in their own directions
0: you know that's a good point yeah because like the book defined itself it was right there you know on the first page of every issue as it was about europe's premier superhero team but like that's a very general premise. It's like, oh, they're superheroes, but in Europe. It's like, guys, there are, there are a lot of things in Europe. Europe's a very large place. There's a lot of, a lot of history and a lot of human beings there, and, and mutants too, I guess.
1: There are giant, giant seafowl.
0: Giant seafowl, it's true.
1: So there's, there's this place in, in um, Brussels called Mini Europe. It's a, sort of a theme park, but it's just models, like scale models of a bunch of European landmarks. But the thing is, there are, there are ducks and geese, that hang out there and they just so so what it looks like is that europe's landmarks are beset by enormous
0: waterfowl it's fantastic (laughs) well shit excalibur needs to get back together and defend europe from the giant goddamn seagulls anyway i don't know how you follow that up so i guess we'll talk about what happened uh after excalibur because like x-factor there were other volumes of it um, there actually is a little-known Volume 2. It's a 2001 miniseries that's also called Excalibur Sword of Power. It's written by Ben Robb. It's very much a follow-up to this run. And it goes into more of, like, the braddock Captain Brittany, magic-y stuff. It's pretty good. Um, after that, though, we'd get a weird goddamn story. You alluded to this earlier, Jay. Mm-hmm. We would get Excalibur Volume 3 by Chris Claremont, which— How does, how does one even describe that?
1: Picture Not Found?
0: Yeah, kind of, yeah. It was, like, set on the Ruins of Genosha, and it was about Xavier and Magneto and, like, a bunch of new characters. And I don't even know why it was called Excalibur. Like, there was some reference to, you know, drawing the sword and igniting the dream and whatever, but it's like, this this, this has zero things in common with the old Excalibur.
1: Miles, it was called Excalibur because trademarks expire if you don't use them.
0: But the thing is, like, the next year, in 2005, I think we had new Excalibur, which was Chris Claremont writing an Excalibur book uh which felt much more like standard excalibur like the only returning character was captain britain like the other ones were new there was dazzler and stuff uh but it still felt kind of like excalibur it still had that wonky feel to it so weird choice very weird choice
1: and finally we have you know the crocoan era um magic related team led by betsy braddock as the new captain britain um followed up by Knights of X and Betsy Braddock, Captain Britain, which again kind of feel, even though they're in very very different tones, um, feel more rooted in the original Excalibur to me at least.
0: And I think part of that is that multiversal stuff and magical stuff are very, very core to it. I mean, you have like Richter learning to be a druid, which Richter was never historically an Excalibur character. There weren't a lot of druids around, but it totally fits. And part of that is you still have the Captain Britain core. You still have betsy braddock as one of many captain Britons across the entire multiverse one of them is a swan and that is great one of them's a dinosaur also great
1: And i can't remember whether i mentioned that these these, these have all been consistently written by teeny howard which again giving us a, a consistent voice on on those series has i think been been helpful
0: so there you go that's all of x factor and all of excalibur in in less than an hour and Man, those series have had their ups and their downs throughout Volume 1. You know, I'm glad we're covering fewer comics in the podcast now. It feels a little less overwhelming, but I'm going to miss them. Like, their last runs were, again, not our favorite, but still, they were so good. I miss those characters all in combination. I miss those premises already.
1: Hi Rivero asks on Tumblr, I'm curious about a where-are-they-now for the 90s X-Factor team. We see Madrox dupes here and there. Havoc, Himbo, and Dark X-Men was, um... Yeah, through okay signs, and Polaris are around, but where's Rain? Guido? Random? I'm not even sure where Madrox Prime is running around nowadays.
0: Yeah, so they're mostly all around. Uh, like you mentioned, Havoc has been in Dark X-Men most recently, having just a terrible time. Uh, Polaris was on the X-Men herself for a while. Uh, but yeah, everybody else is is around. That's uh, one of the things I've loved about the Krakoan era is there are a bunch of books and a bunch of crowd scenes. So you'll still see your your obscure fave here and there. I, I even saw Bedlam recently in a big crowd scene.
1: So let's uh, go down the
0: list. Uh yeah so Wolfsbane Wolfspain's actually been kind of a big deal lately. Um, she has been revisiting her role as a teacher, this time not having sex with any of her students, unlike in uh New Mutants Volume 2. Um she's been teaching a bunch of the kids on Krakoa. She's actually one of the main teachers in the recently completed New Mutants Lethal Legion miniseries, and she's really suited to the role. Like, it's been cool seeing her grow up and just be that kind of a mentor figure, that kind of, like, a compassionate, very present, still very herself human and vulnerable mentor character.
1: Strong Guy isn't headlining much of anywhere, but he's been around Krakoa most recently hanging out with his best buddy Multiple Man in some X-Men Unlimited Infinite comic stories.
0: Uh, Yeah. And we've mentioned it before, but I feel like so few people read these. The online-only X-Men Unlimited comics and Love Unlimited and Marvel's Voices Unlimited and all that stuff. uh, It's Jeff, also great. Alligator Loki, also great. But there are a lot of really good online-only comics. And yeah, you have to read them on a tablet or a phone. I guess you could do that. But if you already have Marvel Unlimited, like you have these. Just read them. They're really good, especially X-Men Unlimited. Uh multiple man, yeah. So uh the listener mentions Madrox. Uh he has indeed been working as many, many scientists for X-Corp, that sadly short-lived uh, corporate X-Team that Teeny Howard was writing um remember he was a lab assistant for like a million years working for moira he knows that stuff also he can make copies of himself so he can learn a lot of things Uh, but he's been splitting that time with being a husband to layla miller and a dad to his baby davy who recently got kidnapped into space by a bunch of renegade space pirate madrox dupes again that was in the x-men unlimited online thing he and strong guy teamed up it was it was delightful
1: quicksilver is on the human mutant inhuman uncanny avengers aka the unity squad
0: Random, he just sort of randomly showed up <laughs> uh, here and there. He is not a character that has been very revisited. Um, he was on S.W.O.R.D.'s security team in space for a while, and then he joined the X-Men Red Squad that came out of that briefly. But he's just sort of been a background character for a long, long time. It seems like after X-Factor ended, and especially after Polaris was doing other stuff, like nobody really knew what to do with Random. I mean, he started out as a Lobo parody of all things, so I get it.
1: Wildchild has had a rough time. He regressed once again and joined the Hellions, sending up subservient to Psylocke. And everything with the Hellions went bad, and now he's heavily medicated.
0: Yeah, poor Wildchild. Like, it's been so long since he's been this sort of self-deprecating, good-hearted kid we saw in X-Factor. I think he's probably, like, sunk the lowest of any of them since then. Uh, as for Forge, um, he's actually been around a lot. He's been mostly a background character. Like, he's been one of the dudes who's heavily been working on the plant technology stuff for Krakoa. He was on the X-Men very briefly for a bit recently.
1: See, Sabretooth uh, ended up in the pit because of breaking Krakoan laws. Uh, he later starred in the surprisingly good Sabretooth and Sabretooth and the Exiles miniseries and is currently at large anticipating an appearance in a big Wolverine event.
0: Uh, Yeah, the Sabretooth miniseries and the Sabretooth and the Exiles one, those are also ones not to sleep on. Like, you'd think it would just be an edgelordy series about a bad guy, but no, it's actually all about, like, carceral policy and the importance of decarceration and, like, goes into, like, race stuff. It, It was way headier than I would have expected uh mystique the other villain uh she was on the quiet council of krakoa for a while and she got all sneaky and manipulative so that they would resurrect her wife destiny even though there was a rule at not resurrecting anyone with precognitive abilities and it was so goddamn good so good yeah uh right now she's in uncanny spider-man um she's she's real messed up after what happened to uh, krakoa uh as for shard shard's complicated
1: so, toward the end of the Bishop the Last X-Men 90s series, Shard sacrificed herself to defeat Trevor Fitzroy, and she has not appeared in a comic since.
0: Trevor fucking Fitzroy really does ruin everything, doesn't he? Yeah, we, we addressed that in a recent listener question about, like, whether she could be resurrected. It's, it's complicated. I, I don't see it happening. So, uh, I think those are at least most of the 90s characters. Um, that got, like, way more involved than we were expecting, but it was kind of fun revisiting everyone. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, So obviously the Doyles explanation for the following question is that nobody working on the current books wants to use him, which is an understandable but boring answer. I'm asking you then, what is the Watsonian slash in-universe answer to why haven't we seen Rusty, Rusty Collins in the Krakowan era?
1: I'd like to li- think that he's living a quiet life somewhere, maybe in a cabin with a bunch of books.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, just, like, uh, as part of a family who appreciates his good heart and his hard work and, like, consistently remembers that he exists, and, like, he's never even going to talk to any member of an ex-team ever again.
1: I like that. That seems like a good ending for Rusty.
0: Yeah. I know he was always paired with Skids, like they were dating almost from the start, but she's definitely with Krakoa these days. Um, I-, I found out that she most recently showed up um, as a Krakoan mutant island relations ambassador in a Modoc miniseries that Patton Oswalt co-wrote so there you go Uh, though i don't know i I think i think we're being too optimistic like i think what may be more likely is that maybe scott and gene pulled some strings to get a body ready for him to be resurrected into uh in one of those eggs in krakoa but then like professor x forgot to actually put rusty's mind back in it and then somebody like draped a coat over it and she's been sitting there for like a year in the corner utterly forgotten like 99 percent ready for rusty to be back in the world but everyone just got distracted oh We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and or concepts. And if ever there was a time to hear from ZZ105, well, that time is now.
1: You've been listening to 43 Minutes of Experimental Glockenspiel Jazz, only on ZZ105. Next up, Jeff Osterritter and Eric will be joining us with a live interpretation of selections from their new album of holiday favorites performed at half-tempo by eight nudists with (laughs) didgeridoo's. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in New Fairfield, Connecticut, that's a rarity this week, usually it's Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moonheight-talk.bandcamp.com. Whether Matt is nude with a didgeridoo in this work has yet to be discovered.
0: New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com.
1: Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode.
0: Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com.
1: You could have your very own signature Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men tote bag.
0: And uh, please take a moment to rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform, because uh, that really helps. Next week, the X-Men
1: update their roster.
0: And get a visit from the most competent man in the Marvel Universe.